0: Welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Tanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing Strange But True: The Life and Adventures of Captain Thomas Crapo and Wife. It's published in New Bedford in 1893, and we're on part 3. I do want to add here a little warning for those who are sensitive on such subjects, or those who are listening with children. This book is ultimately about Captain Crapo taking his wife across the Atlantic in a dory, a fantastic adventure that it's good to hear about. But at the beginning of this book, it does go into the detail of his life as a young teenager involved in the whaling business out in the Pacific, and the descriptions in this chapter are quite graphic. Part 3. Continued. From there, we sailed for the South Sea Islands, south of the equator. We first sighted the Caroline Islands. We went ashore and traded hard bread, cloth and other things with the natives, The captains of whalers usually carry articles specifically to trade with the locals in each place they visit. We traded for coconuts, pigs, chickens and other eatables. We cruised among the islands for a period of three months, going ashore on several of them, but not getting any whales during the time. We then sailed for the Marchese group. Seeing two whalers at anchor in Magdalena Bay, we ran in and came to anchor. We then took on wood and water the island at this time being inhabited by cannibals, wild kanakas. We traded old boats to them for wood and let them use the ship's axes to cut it with. While cutting wood for us, one of the natives, not being skilled in the art, cut his leg just above the ankle. In seeing one of their friends badly hurt, they all clustered around him. Several began rubbing his leg as hard as they could from the knee down, which caused the man to bleed to death in a very short time. While rubbing his leg... His comrades were calling him a great brave in their own tongue. After he was dead, they placed him in a sitting position, placed his old flintlock gun traded with some whale ship between his knees with his hands grasping it. A woman then sat down beside him and began fanning him to keep the flies away. We stayed there almost three weeks and when we left, he was still in the same position. How much longer he sat there, I am unable to say. While we were there, the ship Europa and Bark Nerva were in for wood and water, and for some reason the natives seized the boat belonging to the Europa and refused to give it up. The three captains held a consultation on the subject and concluded to fire on the town. Accordingly, our ship, the Marcia, was hauled shore as close as was deemed advisable. We then put springs on our cable fore and aft to hold her in position. We then got our old cannon from the hold and loaded her, putting in old nails, spikes, bits of iron, in fact anything that would do any damage, and let her go. We fired, I should judge, about 50 times. When the old chief was seen coming off to us in his canoe, we ceased firing, and he came on board, and as soon as he stepped on deck, we seized and held him until the boat was delivered up to the owners. A Kanaka that was on board was dispatched on shore to tell the natives of the situation, and very soon the boat was seen making for the Europa. After she was delivered... We let the old chief go, and as soon as he was well away from the ship, we hove up anchor and left, not daring to stay there any longer, not knowing what the natives might do. We started for Revolution Bay. This bay is in the island of Wakahu, one of the same group. Here again we had Liberty, the captain giving us cloth, flints and other things to trade instead of money, as the natives there had no use for money. While some were on shore, others were painting the ship and making other necessary repairs. Albacores and skipjacks are very abundant among these islands, and we would catch a number of large ones and salt them down. It's a good sport catching them. All you want is a piece of strong wire bent in the shape of a hook. Tie a white rag to it and drop it overboard. It hardly touches the water before they grab it. As they usually swim along close to the top of the water, they are on the lookout for something to eat. Many of them are very large, weighing 50 or more pounds. I should judge their flesh is far superior to our native cod. While the ship was at anchor here i and one other of the crew and one from another whaler took leg bail for the mountains not caring to stay aboard any longer the natives soon got after us setting the tall dry grass on fire to drive us out thinking we were in among it but were unsuccessful in dislodging us as we were not there we remained in the mountains two days and nights when we went to another village about 10 miles from where our ship was anchored on arriving at the village we saw only two men, but there were quite a number of women. They acted as though they were pleased to see us and were jabber to each other, probably wondering where we came from. Presently, I noticed the two men talking quite earnestly and occasionally looking in the direction we had come, and shortly after, they went to the shore and started off in a canoe. I was suspicious at once and made up my mind that they were on the way to inform our captain about us and get a reward. I spoke to my companions about it, but they only laughed at my fears, saying, don't fear, they will never blow on us, we are all right now. The more I thought of it, the more determined I was, I was right, and as it was nearly time for the boat to return, if such was the case, I told my companions I was going to the water hole where we drank on our way down to get a drink, advising them to follow me, but they remained firm and I went alone. After quenching my thirst, as it was very hot then and anyone not used to the climate wants to drink all the time, I went higher up, probably 300 yards, and lay down where I could watch the approach of any boat. In about an hour, I should judge, I saw our ship's boat come in and take my companions back to the ship, just as I thought they would. I lay very quiet and soon heard the two natives hunting for me with a dog. He came quite close several times, so near in fact that I could hear him sniff, sniff, trying to smell me out. But not finding me, they soon gave it up. The sun was scorching hot And how I stood it I don't know, but as soon as darkness settled over the island, I again went to the water hole and quenched my thirst. And after the intense heat of the day, it is a wonder I was not sick from drinking so much. After satisfying my thirst, I started up the mountain and down the other side, and as I noticed a sort of cave, I crawled in and slept through the remainder of the night. I do not know how large it was or whether there was anything in it, as I did not explore it, but left as soon as daylight broke. While wandering along I espied several coconut trees, whereupon I decided to climb one and get some of them. A coconut tree is not a very easy tree to climb as there are no branches to take hold of, all the foliage being in a bunch at the top, but I succeeded in climbing one and gathering several of the nuts which, in my hungry state, were very delicious. After I finished eating them, I went a short distance and again lay down out of sight in the tall grass. And very soon, I heard two distinct voices, which I concluded were from two or more of the natives looking for me. I remained very quiet, and the sound soon ceased. In fact, I remained very quiet and shady until after dark, when I started towards the village, where we had come ashore. The ship was still at anchor offshore. I made friends with the king, who hid me until the vessel sailed, but as she sailed the next morning, I was not put to much inconvenience. In order to ensure my safety, the king had one of his underchiefs, put their sacred mark on my arm between the wrist and elbow, which is called a taboo. Anyone with this mark on him is safe on any of these islands. It is a very queer-looking insignia, and I never could form any idea what it represented. It is pricked in with sharks or some other kind of teeth in a very crude manner, and is not much of a treat to sit and have it done. But if it was to be the means of my safety, I would not object to having it done, and as I was in their power, I could not help myself anyway. For if they took the notion, they would have tattooed me all over, as most of the natives are covered with marks hard to distinguish, yet they answer just as well for them. Their style of dress is generally unique, being merely a strip of bark and soaked in water and pounded until it is nearly as tough as leather. This is called a tapper and is worn around the loins, the rest of their body usually being naked. Some of them trade with vessels and get clothes. Captains usually carry a supply of old clothes on purpose to trade. Old-fashioned coats, vests, pants and old-style hats, including beavers, are a novelty among them. And to see the way some of them put them on would make you split your sides laughing. I've seen the old king make quite a number of changes in one day and would only wear one article at a time. To see them with pants on and nothing else does not look so queer, but when they put on a vest or a coat or an old beaver hat, they do look comical enough. Just imagine to yourself how it would seem to you to walk along the street and meet a man all tattooed with India ink and a strip about the loins and an old high hat on his head, bracing back as though he owned the world, and after passing him, meet another naked all but the strip and an old coat, and another with an old vest. I was with them three months and soon learned to talk quite well, yet I had to laugh whenever I came across them dressed up. Again, many of them shave one side of the face and let the beard grow on the other, which is the most comical part of it all. Their food consists chiefly of what is called poi, yet pigs and chickens are quite abundant. Poi is made from breadfruit, baked on hot stones and covered with ashes. When done, the outside is taken off when the fruit is pounded up fine and mixed with water, which forms a dough. It is then laid away in a trough or hollow stone to sour, as the more sour it gets, the better they like it. They then pound up a coconut and squeeze it through the husk, which forms a cream. When the poi is sour enough, they sit down and put two fingers in the dough, then in the cream, and then into their mouths. I was not used to eating that way, but of course I had to follow suit. The poi, as they ate it, was too sour for me, so I made a fresh supply for myself, and as often as I chose. The natives were at war with each other while I was there, and it would make one laugh to see them get up the mountainsides a mile or more apart and blaze away with their old flintlock muskets, and they would continue in this manner until one or more is killed or wounded when peace is again declared. This war was in the year of 1858. I had been on the island three months, when the Bark Greyhound of Westport, Massachusetts, under command of Captain Cathcart of Nantucket, touched there and wanted me to go with him. And I was anxious to go, but the old king would not have it. He wanted me to stay with him. I was tired of their mode of life, as I could not write to my parents or friends, and they of course would not know whether I was living or dead, so I meant to join the Greyhound if possible. At last, after considerable parlaying, Captain Cathcart offered the old king some paint, paint oil, hard bread and lead to make bullets of, and a mold to make them in. This touched a tender spot and the king consented to let me go. I lost no time in getting ready, as I did not know whether the king would change his mind or not, and I did not feel safe until I was on board, and as soon as I and the captain arrived on board, we squared away for the coast of California and as she was not anchored, we had only to sheet home her sails, and off we went. We cruised off Cape St Lucas for a period of about four weeks, but did not see any whales. We went on shore in several places and got clams and mussels and other shellfish. We then sailed for the Maria Islands on the west coast of Mexico. We anchored and went on shore for wood and rabbits. Talk of rabbits, my friends, you never saw such a sight in your lives unless you have visited this island. They were so thick when I was there that all you had to do was to knock them right and left with sticks we carried for that purpose. Some people would take a gun and one or more dogs and tramp all day from daylight until dark or in snow sometimes a foot deep and the thermometer many times below zero just to get a shot at one or more of these little inoffensive creatures. And yet here they are as thick as sand fleas in summer. We stopped the wholesale slaughter after we had a large pile of them as we did not want to take the livers of any more than we wanted to eat. We took on board, I should judge, between four and five hundred, and we all had a treat while they lasted. Their tender flesh was a luxury we had not dreamed of having, but with a large crew on board, they were soon gone, as none, to my knowledge, ever refused their share when it was sent forward to them. From there, we sailed for the coast of Ecuador, humpback whaling. We mated with the barque Lagrange, Captain Golden of Providence, Rhode Island, When vessels mate with each other, it is an understanding between them to unite together in securing whales, the oil to be divided between them, no matter which ship's boat gets the whale or whales. Many times, vessels meet at sea, and on sighting whales, one of them will hoist the American flag at the mizzen peak, and if the captain of the other vessel is agreeable too, he will sanction his willingness to mate by hoisting his flag at the mizzen peak also, then all hands buckle to it and get as many whales as they can. We anchor about three miles offshore, as humpback whales are caught in shoal water close inshore, and the crews take the boats and cruise for them, a lookout on the ship signalling to them if any are seen from there. Humpback whales are apt many times to capsize a boat, as they are supplied with large fins on each side of their bodies, called topsail yards by sailors. As soon as daylight breaks, the crew are on the lookout for them. We got about 400 barrels, all told, which, by mating, only left us about 200, And as the season was nearly over, we hove up anchor and sailed away for Tombas on the east coast of Peru in South America. We anchored outside and took on a fresh supply of water and sweet potatoes, which are raised in large quantities there and are generally a grand treat for the sailors. Many of them are eaten raw. After putting things in shape, we again had liberty, after which we again started for the Calio ground. Just to the south of the Chinchi Islands, we cruised in company with nearly 20 other vessels, For a period of about three months and only got two small sperm whales during the time while cruising there we gammed the bark catch a lot a horton and several other whalers which was a treat for us as it is at all times we exchanged reading matter and had some good singing and storytelling and the pipes and tobacco were passed around quite freely the two whales caught stowed down about 70 barrels after storing our oil below we bade our friends goodbye and good luck and sailed for Valparaiso, Chile, and on the passage stopped at the island of Juan Fernandez, the well-known home of Robinson Crusoe and his man Friday. We laid off and on three days and went ashore after goats, peaches and quinces, or anything we could get that was good to eat. In the story of Robinson Crusoe, we read that his pets were his goats and kids, but be that as it may, one to see the great numbers of goats would not doubt it. We also got a large quantity of clawfish close inshore, These fish are similar to our native lobster only they have monster claws from which they derive their name. Their flesh or meat as you may call it is very nice and somewhat better I think than our lobster. We also visited the famous cave the home of Robinson Crusoe. This cave extends into the bank 40 or 50 feet and is about 8 or 10 feet wide and about 10 feet high in the center. While there gazing into the cave, my mind reverted to the stories I had read and heard related about this famous place and its occupants, little dreaming that I should ever see it or enter it, and yet there I was, and I felt very much pleased and grateful to our captain for stopping and allowing us to visit it. We then continued on to Valparaiso, 600 miles away. On the way we sighted whales, and by lowering and working hard, succeeded in capturing one, and while cutting him in, the weather grew heavy, and the wind blew very hard, which caused us to lose the head. The carcass gave us about 80 barrels. On our arrival at Valparaiso, the captain ordered the vessel on the dry docks to repair the copper and make other necessary repairs. I got my discharge there and received my wages, which, if I remember right, was about $1.50, a large sum of money for all my hard work. I remained ashore three or four days and then shipped again, this time on the bark cash under command of Captain Perry. So again I found myself afloat, bound for the Calio grounds, We took with us two passengers, an Englishman and his wife, a Chilean, whom we were to land on the island of Juan Fernandez, where they intended to make their home. And as there was only one family of five Spanish people living there at the time, I thought to myself they would be quite lonesome. After landing them, we proceeded on to the whaling ground. We caught several whales during the season without any serious accident, only a stove boat once in a while. In fact, every boat we had was stove more or less during the time. We stowed down about three hundred barrels of sperm oil. While cruising there, the ship Trident of New Bedford, under command of Captain Fisher of Nantucket, just out from Callio, informed the captain that the owner of the Cachalot, having sent another captain to take command in place of Captain Perry, he was to land at Valparaiso, and the steamer he came on stopped at Calio for coal. And Captain Fisher of the Trident saw and talked with him, and as was natural, asked him what vessel he was after and was informed that he was after the cash After recruiting his vessel, he put to sea, and sighting us, ran down for a gam, his main objective being to inform Captain Perry of the object of the arrival of the new captain. Our captain was much pleased on account of Captain Fisher notifying him of the transaction about to take place, so instead of going to Valparaiso, he ran into Callio and sold about 150 barrels of oil while laying off and on. We put the oil on board of lighters and towed them nearly inshore when we cast off the lines and let them go, so the American consul could claim the oil. We then ran a little further in and came to an anchor. After the sails were furled and rigging coiled up and the ship put in shape, the captain went on shore and delivered up his papers to the American consul. That night, the boarding house runners came on board and coaxed us to come to their house to board, and the whole crew, myself included, agreed to go. Which we did, and in less than one week we were all shanghaied on board of a large merchant ship bound for Queenstown Island for orders, and we soon were notified that we were in debt to the ship $75. She was the Francis A. Palmer of New York, Captain Richardson, and was 2,000 tons burthen. This was in the year of 1860. Everything went well until we were about a week out when we were put on a short allowance of food. We had plenty of work to do and very little to eat. We were loaded with Peruvian guano, not a very sweet-smelling cargo. On account of the short allowance of food, I used to go down between decks and steal hard bread and stow it away in my berth in order to get enough to eat. We were about four months and twenty days on the passage, which was a very rough one all the way. During the passage, three of our topsails were blown clear from the bolt ropes. This was all off the Western Islands. From Queenstown, we were ordered to London to discharge. After discharging the cargo, we were discharged ourselves, receiving the munificent sum of about $25 for all our hard work. I stayed in London until my money was gone, then shipped again on the bark Charles Edwin, Captain Littlejohn of Portland, Maine. We went to the north of England to the City of Shields to load coal for Havana, Cuba. We had a very rough passage, having to lay the vessel to several times. On our arrival, the crew had to hoist out the coal by hand in small baskets, ...and dump it into lighters alongside. While discharging the coal, the vessel was chartered to load sugar at Cardness for New York. After discharging the coal, the vessel was thoroughly cleansed to receive the cargo of sugar. While at Cardness, the Rebel steamer, with the Rebel commissioners Mason and Slidell arrived. This was at the beginning of the War of 1861. There were several vessels there at the time, flying the Southern or Rebel flag. We finished loading and sailed for New York, making the passage in five days... During the passage, we were hove to in a gale in the Gulf Stream about 18 hours. This was in the month of November 1861. It was quite a sight on our arrival to see the outskirts of the city covered with tents and the city was full of soldiers. I began to think that the north meant business, as everywhere I went I was sure to meet soldiers, the city being fairly alive with them. I left the vessel there and returned to my home in New Bedford. That's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up to the mates level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.